Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Hello, my name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each and every week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 363 with Charles Duff and Cities of Friendship and Love. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. Gusto, the easy online payroll and benefit service built for modern small businesses like ours. In other words, it's a people platform. And RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more, all for free. Thanks to FreshBooks and Gusto and RCAT for supporting Entree Architect and the Entree Architect community of small firm architects. Charles Duff, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Well, thanks. Good to be here. It is great to have you here. Charles Duff is a planner, teacher, developer, and historian. In a career of more than 35 years, he has built or rebuilt more than 300 buildings and led the revival of some of Baltimore's most successful neighborhoods. He has been president of Jubilee Baltimore, the city's premier community development nonprofit since 1987, and has been president of the Baltimore Architecture Foundation. A graduate of Amherst College and Harvard University, he lectures widely in America and elsewhere and has taught at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he wrote 
Then and Now, Baltimore Architecture in 2005, and contributed to the book, The Architecture of Baltimore. And in his new book, The North Atlantic Cities, he has uh, just published that in the UK, and it's available here, right here in the United States, where I am and where I'm recording. Uh, Charles, it's great to have you with us here today. This is this is going to be fun conversation. You and I talked a little bit prior to hit and record, and uh, I think that uh, I think you and I are going to have a, a fun conversation here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. There's an art to making a guy feel comfortable on what's essentially radio, and you have that art. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. I appreciate that. Let's let's start where it all started. Let's start with your origin story. When did you discover the passion for what you do today? What and maybe who inspired you? And sh share that share that journey with us here at the podcast. Well, I am a nonprofit real estate developer, and I've done that all my career pretty much. And when I tell people that, they usually look at me kind of squint-eyed and say, isn't that kind of like being a nonprofit contract hitman or something? <laughs> you don't really, really do that. Um, but I do. And it's because I come from Baltimore. And Baltimore needs to be rebuilt and maintained. Uh, and I love the place. I love the people. Uh, I had fun in New England going to school, had fun at the GSD, had fun in Europe. Uh, and wherever I went, I found this is nice, but the people I really love are in Baltimore. And what I want to do is to rebuild a great city. So I need to have a city that needs rebuilding uh, and it needs to be great. And I thought, what a lucky slug I am that I actually got <laughs> born into a place that needs what I want to do. Uh, when did I discover my vocation? I can make it sound simple. Um, you know, from a, a real revelation one day when I had just turned 15 and you know, I was doing volunteer work at a hospital and a guy in the boiler room sent me down to the, for the commercial street for a part. And I found myself in an 18th century waterfront neighborhood where all the houses were boarded up and vacant. And I thought Baltimore was just an ugly Victorian city. I had no idea it had anything like that. Um, and I had no idea why it was vacant and I didn't know anybody who knew. So it turned out that part of town was about to get torn down for an interstate highway but there was some bunch of mucklocks who were trying to stop that. So I joined them and knocked on doors and gave 15 year old speeches at, at public meetings and, um, and got interested in building cities. And I can make that sound simple. It wasn't so simple because I got interested in lots of other things too, but finally realized that this was it. So decided I should be an architect and went to school. You know, I, by, by that time I was out of college I thought I had to learn to draw. So I went to the Maryland Institute College of Art to learn to draw. And I realized that God had not made me to be an architect. Uh, <laughs> I had to do something else. So I said, well, you know, when, when, when I really want to, when something really moves me, I don't reach for a brush and I don't reach for a pencil. What do I reach for? And I reach for my larynx, um, you know, that I try to persuade people to do things or I try to think things through out loud. So I said, okay, how can you rebuild a great city uh, with your larynx? And uh, I wound up as a nonprofit developer. And you can thank the Harvard GSD and the Harvard Business School. And that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Um, and um, so that's basically it. If, if you want to understand why I do what I do, uh, come to Baltimore and let me show you around. Um, 
And I will show you one of the great cities of the world, but a city that needs what I do and needs more than I can do. And it needs what you, you do too. Um, and, and it'll reward you because it's that good. I'm going to take you up on that, Charles. I'm going to come, come up and visit because I would love a tour. I am. I am. I ran tours for the Baltimore Architecture Foundation for years. I'm getting good at it. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do that. I my my mom is uh, an American history buff. She loves American history, and so um, she used to take us on day trips to to cities, and we would go on vacation to places like Williamsburg. And uh, we grew. I grew up in Bergen County in New Jersey, and so there's lots of history there all around New York City. Um, and so it's in my blood, it's in my veins, and I really enjoy it. It makes me happy because it takes me back to my childhood. And so to have somebody take me around a city, uh, someone who knows the, the history of the city and understands how it developed, uh, it's fascinating to me, the evolution of cities. And so I think it'll be a lot of fun to, uh, to have you uh, share that knowledge with me in, 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 a, in a private tour. But I'd love to also share that right here uh, today. Um, your pandemic's your, over. Let's let, let's get up a tour for your your worldwide public. Yeah, that sounds good too. Uh, Baltimore or any of the North Atlantic cities. By now, I've tramped through all of them. <laughs> so explain. Exp you just you you just published a book, the the North Atlantic cities. Um, I don't remember in architecture school and in architecture or history class cities being categorized as North Atlantic cities. Can you explain? Um, what we're talking about, which cities are we talking about, what and what makes a North Atlantic city unique? Why is it, why are you defining it as such? Right, uh, yeah, I don't remember ever hearing about North Atlantic cities either. I didn't invent them, but I think I discovered them. Um, and it's hard to believe that they needed discovering because they're pretty big and, uh, and they're really different from other kinds of cities. And I, I first noticed this when I was 20. I had a junior year abroad um, I grew up, you know, in the middle Atlantic states and, you know, there was, you didn't fly around a lot in the 1950s and 60s if you were a little kid. So I grew up in Baltimore and every now and then I went to Washington and every now and then I went to Philadelphia and that was about it. Um, and so if you grew up as I did, you grew up thinking that cities are things that have row houses. That's what a city is in the middle Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, and it may have other things like Independence Hall in Philly or the Washington Monument in Washington. Um, but the dominant impression that you take away from a city in the middle Atlantic is an impression of row houses. In fact, I remember a friend of my dad's from the South came up to Baltimore for the first time, dad drove him around. And he said, nice town you got here, Charlie, but tell me, how do Baltimore drunks find their way home at night? All the houses look <laughs> the same. So, uh, but, uh, so, you know, then I was 20. I went over to the UK, spent a year in Scotland and got down to London as often as I could and wandered around England, Bath, Bath, all these places. Um, and they were really different and really sometimes awful, sometimes delightful, but they were cities of row houses. And that, didn't affect me one way or another because that's what I thought a city was. And then the next summer I went over to Paris and Paris has a lot of stuff and it's pretty wonderful, most beautiful city I know, but it doesn't have row houses. Paris is a city of apartment houses and even New York has row houses, they call them brownstones. Paris was the first city I had ever been in 
that was totally different from any city I'd ever been in. And I wandered around continental Europe, and it turned out that all the cities of continental Europe, Italy and Germany and France, uh, were cities like Paris. They were cities of apartment houses. They were cities of very high density. Um, and they had pretty active street life. And they were great fun to wander around. And they were really different. And I had just turned 21. And I said, gee, I want to know why there are two ways of building cities. I can't be the first person who ever noticed this. Somebody must have written about it. Uh, I want to read the book. So a couple of years later, I went to the American Midwest in Minneapolis, and I found there was a third kind of a city, which I would describe as suburbs around skyscrapers. And that turns out to be the typical way of building cities in most of the United States, even in Canada. So um, in between the apartment house cities of continental Europe and the suburban cities, the sprawling cities of continental North America, you have the row house cities. You find them on both sides of the North Atlantic Ocean. Here in our country, you see them along the coast uh, from Richmond in the south to New York in the north with a northern outlier in Boston and a southern outlier in Savannah. And they go inland about as far as the Ohio River Valley, and that's about it. That's the row house region of America. And then there's a row house region in Europe. It's the UK, it's the Republic of Ireland, it's the Netherlands, it's Belgium. And it's got a couple of outliers in North Germany and a couple of outliers in coastal France. But that's about it. So you've got this, here's a way of building cities. It's, an, it's a region of architecture and city building. And it's, the, it's in two halves and they're separated by this giant ocean. And I thought, well, I can't be the first person who ever noticed this. Somebody must have figured this out and written about it. I want to read that book. And 10 years ago, I realized I'd never found the book, so I'd have to figure it out. So the key thing about North Atlantic cities, we want to know whether your city is North Atlantic or not. First question to ask is, does it have old row houses? If it has old row houses, it's probably a North Atlantic city. Even Melbourne, Australia, I'm told, has old row houses, but I didn't have the budget to go there. Um, and if you're, you know, if you have the, the frame of mind of a planner, another way to think of the North Atlantic cities is that they are cities of moderate density. Uh, they're in between the high density cities of continental Europe, where people live in small apartments and they go to restaurants a lot. Uh, and that, that's on one side. And then on the other side, the low density cities of continental America, where you can entertain at home, but you have to get in a car or a pickup and drive somewhere to buy a tube of toothpicks. Uh, the North Atlantic cities are cities of moderate density, 20 to 50 units to the acre. You can't have retail on every street. They're not that dense, but you can be within walking distance of a commercial street. And if you go to the really good North Atlantic cities like London or Washington or Boston, uh, the ones that are firing on all cylinders, any of the Dutch cities, it really, it really works. You can have a house that's fit to live in. Uh, you can know your neighbors. You're not ground in people. But you want public life? No problem. Three-minute walk, four-minute walk. Uh, you want to live without a car? No problem. You've got enough density to support mass transit. You don't have to be as dense as New York or Paris. My favorite mass transit system is in London, and London's the greatest row house city in the world. So that's what the North Atlantic cities are, uh, and that's where you find them. Were the, were the row house cities all 
well, at least the row house part of the row house cities, when they were being developed, were they all being developed at the same time? Were all the cities becoming row house cities? Because prior to row houses, colonial times and, and earlier, they weren't row houses. They were smaller individual homes, right? Cities before they became cities um, were not row houses. What, was it an influence from Europe to New York and, and the American, North American, uh, North Atlantic cities, or did they all sort of happen simultaneously and around the same periods? What we think of as the, the row house, this brick thing that's 15 or 20 feet wide, two or three or four stories tall, um, was invented by the Dutch in the first half of the 1600s. The Dutch were the first fully middle-class society anywhere in history. And they needed a way of creating real architecture on a middle-class budget. Plus they were building real cities and they, were, and they needed to have walls around them because the Spaniards were at war with them. Um, and they took the rattle-trapped city houses of the Middle Ages and they figured out how to build them of durable materials, brick, and how to touch them with the magic wand of architecture. It's, friend of mine likes to say. They made them into architecture. Uh, the British rapidly picked up on this um, and uh, had just figured out how to build Dutch-style row houses when Shazam in 1666, the city of London burnt down and it all had to be rebuilt. And Parliament passed a rebuilding act that said, thou shalt build Dutch-style brick row houses and thou shalt not do anything else. So people came to... Um, London from all over the UK to learn how to build brick row houses. And when the job was done seven years later, they all had to go somewhere else and they took their skills with them. Um, and so you get it on this side, you get an interesting thing. Philadelphia was started in 1682. Um, and that's 16 years after the rebuilding of London. Philadelphia is a row house town from day one. It's a brick town from day one. But Boston is 50 years older. Yeah. And Boston was started before the row house revolution. And Boston doesn't build row houses until the 1790s because there's one guy who, you know, takes the grand tour and likes modern architecture and brings it back to Boston. So uh, by the end of the 18th century, row houses have snob value. Uh, if, if, if your town has row houses, your town is a city or it's trying to be a city. Um, and if you wonder what, what the row house meant to our ancestors, the row house meant what the skyscraper means to us. If you've got skyscrapers, you're a city. If you haven't got skyscrapers, you're a town. So much for you. Right. Um, in June of 2019, I moved from New York to Charlotte, North Carolina. So I grew up around New York City, mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in New York City uh, throughout my entire uh, childhood and my adult life. And then in, in 2019, I moved to Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Definitely not a North Atlantic city. It's more like the city you talked about earlier. Um, it's really a city of sprawl. There's sky, you know, the skyscrapers in the middle. It's a beautiful city. It's clean. It's a wonderful place to visit. Um, but there's nothing stopping its development from continuing to grow horizontally. And so it, there's lots and lots of sprawl. And there's no necessity for density. Um, the cities that you're describing, the North Atlantic cities this, that you're describing in your book, um, have a very certain way of life and a certain character and, and, thing, and, and they work in a certain way. They're successful in certain ways. 
what can cities like Charlotte and the, I don't know, hundred of other cities that, that are like Charlotte, right? Because if you've been to Charlotte, you've been to, to many of the cities that are growing up in, in um, North America today. What can cities like Charlotte learn from North Atlantic cities to make them better? Well, you know, you say there's nothing stopping sprawl. Uh, just wait for climate change. Um, and um, the what a city like Charlotte can learn from a city like London or a city like Boston or a city like Washington is how to get enough density uh, to make it possible to live without a car, uh, live a good life without a car, how to get that much density without jamming yourself into a small apartment building. Um, you know, how to get that much density and still be able to raise your kids in a normal way, be able to putter around the kitchen and watch your kids in the backyard, or, you know, have enough neighbors, but not too many, uh, sort of the way normal Americans normally live. You can do that at the moderate density of the row house city. Um, if we all, all of a sudden had to live at New York density or Paris density, uh, we'd probably have to get the Chinese to to set up re-education camps for us. I don't, I don't think we're going to do that quickly. Uh, so, but you know, when you've already got a sprawling landscape and believe me, the North Atlantic cities have it too. I mean, I, I take you around the sprawl around Washington or Philadelphia, yeah, sure. or, you know, you're not exempt from it. Um, I think the greatest challenge for the next generation uh, is going to be retrofitting post-war American suburbia uh, to make it uh, greener. Um, the best example I know, examples I know, uh, are in Washington. And if you go to Washington and look at a street like Connecticut Avenue, the big avenues named after states, you'll see that the big wide avenues uh, have apartment houses. And the apartment houses have enough density to support retail on the ground floor. But out behind the apartment houses, you just have houses. And sometimes they're row houses, but very often, their, you know, freestanding house, American suburbia. And, it, and everybody wins because the apartment houses have enough density to support retail and mass transit. And the families with children living out behind the apartment houses uh, can all walk to retail and mass transit. It's a win-win. And I, you know, I'll, if you come to Baltimore and get my tour, I will show you some commercial arterials that are just sitting there waiting to have apartment houses um, and make their neighborhoods really work. Um, and, you know, and any, any architect in a small firm or almost every architect in a small firm does a lot of domestic renovation work. That's, um, and post-war suburbia needs as much domestic renovation as anything else because kitchens are too small. There aren't enough bathrooms, all that stuff. Um, and that makes architects influential. I mean, you're, you are actually dealing with, with people where they live, quite literally, and can help to shape the way they think. Um, and in my world, it is architects in small firms who are most active in things like the AIA Urban Design Committee, um, the Baltimore Architecture Foundation, most active in shaping the way the public thinks about the built environment. 
We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, FreshBooks, Gusto, and RCAT. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, but trying to figure out our financials on our own? No, it's not one of them. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for businesses like ours. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices to organizing expenses to managing online payments, takes all of that and automates it and simplifies it, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys off to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. So try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com architect and enter Entree Architect in the how did you hear about us section so they know that you came from Entree Architect. That's freshbooks.com architect and let them know that you're a member of the Entree Architect community. Running an architecture business is hard. Endless to-do lists, employees to take care of, and your ever-present bottom line. So first of all, kudos to you for staying on top of all of it. And as a listener of the Entree Architect podcast, by now you already know about our friends at Gusto. Gusto built an easier and more affordable way to manage payroll, benefits, and more. They help over 100,000 businesses with tasks like automated payroll tax filing, simple direct deposits, free health insurance administration, 401ks, onboarding tools, you name it, Gusto made it easy. And they really care about the small business owners they work with. Their support team is attentive and helpful. And since money can be tight right now, you'll even get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com architect and start setting up your business today. And you'll see what I mean when I say easy. Again, that's three months of free payroll at gusto.com architect. You're going to love Gusto. Get started today at gusto.com architect. We are well underway here in 2021 and still no word from most trade shows. We can't wait around for news on which event is proceeding, which is postponed again, and which are canceled. We still need our continuing education credits. And let's not wait until December like we did last year. Let's start planning right now. How are we going to get our 2021 continuing education credits? Our friends at RCAT can help. Along with manufacturer product information, specifications, CAD and BIM, all free by the way, RCAT also provides a list of over 150 manufacturers with accredited continuing education courses. Start earning those credits today at rcat.com CES. It's another free resource RCAT provides to make your life easier. Free continuing education credits available now at rcat.com CES. That's rcat.com CES. E-S. FreshBooks, Gusto, and RCAT. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you 
the Entree Architect community. I think that the uh, post-war architecture, the build, the, the development that's being built, even the development that's being built today, uh, is a tremendous opportunity for architects because there are so many architects that complain about the development that's happening today, the, the big developers and the sprawl that's happening. And yes, I agree. I think that there are many, many problems with that. But those buildings are going to age and those buildings are going to need uh, assistance and, and renovations and uh, redevelopment because those buildings are not being built to last as long as a row house is being built to last. Um, and so I think there are opportunities today, much like what you said, Charles, about uh, post-war homes needing you know, m more modern uh, updates and, and things like that. But I see opportunities for architects in the future uh, to be able to go into some of these development that's ha that developments that are happening today and uh, continue to have impact on those buildings after they've been built. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when when people ask me, you know, why did I spend seven years writing a book? Um, partly it was because it was fun. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to see if I could do it. But mostly it's because as I've done what I've done for 35 years, I have found that the American literature of architecture and city planning is pretty much useless to me. And if you look at architectural record, look at any magazine. It's all about skyscrapers and suburbs. And um, the best examples of what to do with, with moderate density environments are in the Netherlands. Uh, okay, but what happens if you can't read Dutch? Well, I can't read Dutch. Um, the second best examples are in the UK. Well, that's great. Try reading a UK publication and you get bogged down in all these government acronyms about how they finance things. And it's very difficult to figure out what they're talking about. We need an international dialogue. If we're going to figure out how to build good environments that Americans will actually want to live in uh, and will allow us to live with a decent carbon footprint, uh, there are people who can teach us, but we're not in dialogue with them. Uh, the Dutch are the... the, the world champions at this. They are just amazing. Um, and if an American had to move to Paris, an American would have to learn just a huge number of new social skills, and it's very different. But if an American, you know, moved to Holland, the only thing she'd have to do was learn to ride a bike. I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, it, it, you can, it's plug and play. Um, we can do this. <laughs> but we need an international dialogue. I think your book is a good start for that. I think your book, because you do research all these, these cities and, and show how they are similar and, and alike, uh, but you also share the history of these cities and you talk about the future of these cities. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, that it's an important book. I think it's a book that architects should be, should be um, reading, not only if you're interested in cities, but if you're interested in the future of, of architecture, I think it's a very uh, a good place to start. Um, you published the book in 2019, mm -hmm. uh, prior to the pandemic. Great time to do that, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> our, our world has changed pretty significantly since 2019. In 2020, mm -hmm. uh, the world sort of, uh, 
ground to a halt and then rebooted. And, uh, you know, how do you think that the cities will be affected by that? How, how have they, um, how will they adapt to the new world that we're living in, in terms of uh, the health crisis, but also with this new way of working, right? Many of us are now re- working remotely and many of us will continue to work remotely. I don't think this will, will last forever the way we're working, but certainly remote work is part of the permanent uh, work culture. How do you think the pandemic and this new way of working will affect uh, North American or North Atlantic cities, but also cities throughout the world? Well, you know, everybody who writes for any major newspaper is trying to figure this one out too. And philosophers are trying to figure it out. We're all trying to figure it out. Um, The obvious thing I think is that people are going to want their living spaces to have an extra room that can function as an office. And there probably won't be as much single purpose office space. And it may not be a good time in history to own an airport hotel. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I, if, if I have one piece of advice for architects who do housework, uh, it is spend time with realtors and not just once in your life, but on a regular basis. Uh, you know, find realtors who are active in the neighborhoods where you work or the neighborhoods where you want to work and stay in touch with them. Because realtors know more about the housing market than anybody. They know what people actually are looking for. Uh, People are not always looking for what they ought to look for, but they are always looking for what they do look for. And nobody knows more about that than the people who who have to live or die with getting people what they want in houses, and that's realtors. So, uh, you know, if you want to have a side job as a realtor, that's a good idea. If you want to marry a realtor, that's a good idea. If you're not, don't do either of those things. Just, you know, make friends with one and check in every now and then. Learn what they learn what they're learning. Kick ideas around with them. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think about the way cities were uh, designed at one time, where your workspace and your living space was very close, maybe even the same building where you would, you would, um, your commerce would be at the bottom floor and you would live above your store. Uh, And that was the way cities, many of the cities developed because of the way that we lived then. And then we changed and we evolved and we pushed work out, out either inside of the city and we moved our living outside of the city or, or today or recently things have even flipped where we live in the city and the and the big corporate headquarters are outside of the city, so now you're commuting outside of the city. Mm-hmm. But, but I think recently, even before the pandemic, much of it has started to come back to this live-work space, and developers are starting to develop more of this kind of space. But now, with, this, with the way that the pandemic has sort of changed the way that we're working currently, um, do you think that will even um, make that change even more rapid, that developers will start looking at this new way of living and working and and respond in a way that uh, will change the way cities are developed in the future? Maybe. I don't think that, um, I don't think what we've learned in the pandemic is going to shape cities as much in the next 30 years as dealing with climate change. I think that's going to be the big 
driver and everything will be secondary to that. Uh, but this plays well with that. I mean, right. if people are spending more time at home, they're not driving to work. Um, so um, that, that I, I would think is, is important. However, I think it can be overstated. I would not want to be starting my career right now. As a developer? As anything. Because, you know, if you start your career, you have to learn from people who've, who've done it longer than you have. And face it, you have to figure out who the boss is and how to impress the boss. And that it's, it's okay. You can, you can maintain relationships with Zoom or Google Teams, mm, yeah. but it's really hard to build them. Uh, so, you know, it's fine if you're 67 years old like me, what do you care? But if you're starting your career, by God, you want to have colleagues and you want to know them and you want to find out what they're good for and what they're not. And when there's, you know, when there's something that you can do, you want to show off. You want to make sure everybody knows it. Um, but, you know, if you're a, an architect in sole practice, great, you know, just set up in your, in some room in your house and the world is made for you. Um, but, um, but I do think in most people work for larger organizations, not just in architecture, but everywhere. And face-to-face -face contact is how we find out who we, and boy, that's awkward. Face-to-face -face contact is how each of us finds out what the others of us are like and what we're good for and what we're not good for. Uh, it's really hard to do remotely, I think. Maybe yeah. You do more remote stuff than I do. You may have a different bit. I'd like to learn from you. Well, it's there's certainly, I've been working remotely for many, many years, way before the pandemic, and, and there are there are ways to build relationships and I've, you know, I have relationships with people I've never met face to face, mm -hmm. um, who are, who I consider very close friends. Um, but it's not the same. It's a different type of relationship. Um, and so, you know, things have changed. Things will remain the same. There's lots of different, mm -hmm. different, uh, everything evolves, right? If you look at the history, even if you go through your book and you look at the history of, of North Atlantic cities, uh, it's all in evolution, and and those cities started differently than they are today, and today they will continue to evolve. You 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 mentioned in the book that past cities were cities of of industry and commerce, and that today you you write that successful cities are cities of friendship and love. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain that? I love that. I ha I have an idea of what that means. Can you explain that so people can understand that? Yeah, uh, I think. You know, when, when I was growing up and people said, well, why do you need cities? The answer was you need to have large industrial workforces and you need to have large pools of, you know, secretaries typing for executives in office buildings. You need to have people living close to each other. And by, 19, by the 1970s, that was getting to be over, um, for better or worse, it was getting to be over. Um, the there are two things that are really shaping cities now in our world, in the developed world, in the first world. Um, the first thing is that a much higher percentage of us have college or university educations. You know, as late as 1940, only 5% of Americans had ever been to college. And now half of us have been to college and more than a third of us are college graduates and a lot of us have advanced degrees. And that is a sign that you're interested in book learning. It's a sign that you're good at the 
the, the sort of school tasks of listening and talking uh, and that you like doing it. So that's the first thing. A lot of college educated people. Second thing is uh, there are just a lot of adults who do not have children at home. Two thirds of American households right now do not have children at home on any given day. And what people want, what adults want when they're not raising children is really different from what they want when they are raising children. If you're raising children, you want safe, safe play space and good schools. If you're not raising children, uh, you want things to do, people to see, uh, public life, uh, neighbors. And cities are made for educated people who are not raising children. Cities are really good at the things that, that independent adults want. And if you wonder why it is that a lot of cities are bouncing back from the urban crisis of the 1960s and 70s, just look at what they're doing. And what they're doing is tuning themselves up for independent adults. That's yeah, very much so. I, you know, I, I, you look even in, in a city like New York City, um, where they are focusing, and this is happening throughout the world, where public spaces are becoming more of a priority. They're creating pedestrian zones. They're creating places where people can uh, live, work, and play very close to each other, right? So they, they don't need cars. Um, and I think with Uber and the future of autonomous vehicles, this will happen even more where people um, don't have cars anymore and they live in a place where they can walk to wherever they want to go. And when they need a car, you know, they go on their phone and they push a button and an autonomous car pulls up and you hop in it and you go where you need to go and then you get out and that car drives away and you never see it again. Um, that's a future that's coming very soon. Mm -hmm. um, and that will all affect uh, cities. And, I, and I, I'm really excited about where cities are headed today. Um, if, you were a, if you were going to design a new city as a nonprofit developer and you have this opportunity, somebody comes to you and says, okay, we're gonna design a, a new city from scratch. Um, and you have any budget you want and you have no limits, you can do what you wanna do. Uh, what are some of the, what are some of the um, things that we should learn from cities of the past, like North Atlantic cities, mm -hmm. uh, to build the cities of tomorrow? Mm -hmm. um, I think you can learn from our traditions that there are, um, that you need to have a strong city center. Uh, it should be, at this point, a mixed-use city center. It should have a lot of jobs, office jobs, but it should also have people living. And it should be a major center where people go to do things. You know, it should have you know, a, a spectacular park. It should have some theaters. It should have a bunch of restaurants, whatever it should have. But the city should have a center. The city should, should feel that it is a place. The citizens should have some place where they, you know, when they think of you know, their city, something comes into their mind. There is right. a place. A heart, uh, the heart of the city. The heart of the city. And uh, what Ed Bacon used to call the spiritual center of the cities. Yeah. That, Ed Bacon. Uh, but, and you need a good mass transit system. Um, and good means that nobody has to wait for very long. Um, you know, the, the, the industry standard is four minutes at rush hour and eight minutes the rest of the day. Uh, anything you can do to reduce that makes life better. London is now two minutes um, between one underground train and another. 
and it's really liberated the people of London. Um, so, um, you, you, you know, you, urban transit is really different from commuter transit. Urban transit is about, you know, you want to go across town, you, you've got a date with somebody on the other side of town, you have to transfer a couple of times and you don't want to wait too long when you're transferring. Commuter transit is just got to catch the 703 and the 703 right. had better get there at 703 or I get fired. So mass transit's a big part of it. Um, I think the um, American cities on average, except New York, don't have enough apartments and they need more. Um, but, and to the extent that we're building new houses, housing for families or for people who just want to have more space and can afford it, the North Atlantic tradition offers good models um, you know, in its row house building traditions. So I think those are the, those are the things that I would would learn. I'd, I'd take the big suburban arterials, figure out how you can put apartment houses on them. Then you've got enough density to support transit. Um, and that's that, that's what I think would be fun in the next generation. Yeah, yeah, and that's the I think a lot of the the cities today that are growing up like Charlotte, they have a lot to learn. I mean, what you just said, I know that Charlotte has a terrible mass transit system. Um, terrible traffic. It's all built on on highways and cars, and um, you can't get from one side of the. And it's not even a large city. You can't get from one side of the city at rush hour to the other side of the city in less than an hour. Um, anyway, however you do it, uh, and so uh, they have lots to learn. And and I think that that on cities that have that that no restriction of of density and that sprawl, that sprawl will happen. But I think it needs to to be in a way that mass transit fits into that as well, that allows those uh, people who live on the outskirts of the city to be able to get to where they wanna go uh, very quickly. Um, and, uh, and that's all part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think electric cars and autonomous vehicles um, may help us in some ways to meet the challenge of climate change, but not in all, um, because Sprawl itself imposes enormous costs. Think of all the road you have to pave. Think of yep. all the sewer and water lines you have to lay. Um, all, all of that stuff. And, um, and it just makes everything more difficult. Uh, part of, uh, you know, if you've got a, a city that's big enough uh, to take up a lot of space, it won't be enough to have a strong center. You'll need to have, you know, subordinate centers that mm -hmm. are a fairly big deal and the successful cities that i can think of london amsterdam um, manchester in the uk washington um, boston uh, are all good at that um, and you know if you're in cambridge massachusetts uh, you you don't sit around wishing you were in boston cambridge is just fine um, yeah yeah and i think when cities are built like that and and they are built as cities of friendship and love, and you create these city centers where people want to be, that, that uh, are magnetic, They're, they attract people to them, mm -hmm. um, they become places of, uh, that you really enjoy being, um, that also helps, right? I mean, zoning is, is a big piece of it, right? They have to create some sort of zoning, especially in these, mm -hmm. these cities yep. that, like Charlotte, if you don't create that zoning and there's no physical uh, a de deterrent from this sprawl, then the only way you can do that is, is by zoning. Um, but if you also create the city centers that are more appealing, that are more attractive, more people will want to be there, and that density will will grow 
just out of you know uh, you know a natural organic people wanting to be there. Yeah, well, uh, and you've got to, uh, and then you've got to be careful how you deal with that. You can be overly dense. You can um, you can make it impossible to have families in in urban areas. You can you can have it all just for yuppies. If, if, and the market will do that. And if you want to do something else, you have to do it. Yeah. Yep. So, Charles, this is a fascinating conversation. I could go on for more and more hours, and we've we've already been way over where I promised you we would stop. But I'm I'm really interested in the in the subject. But we can we I'd love to to just wrap up on on uh, talking to the small firm architects that we have listening here today. Um, they're small firm architects trying to build better businesses. So, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today that could build a better business for tomorrow? Well. If I knew how to build good businesses, I might not be in the nonprofit sector. So take, <laughs> whatever I say, take it with a grain of salt. But uh, uh, I think the, the the two things that a small firm architect needs to know about. Um, oh God, there's so many things a small firm architect needs to know about. I mean, but uh, you, you you've got to know how people are doing whatever it is that you're designing for. You've got to whether it's living or working or being bench scientists or whatever you're designing for schools. Um, you've got to stay up with the debate over the trends. And nobody knows what's going to happen in five years, but there's a lively debate on what's going to happen in five years and all of those things. What are schools going to be like? What are kitchens going to be like? What's an office layout going to be like? Um, and you need to participate in that debate somehow, whether it's by talking to people or reading things or listening to podcasts or something, you've got to, you've got to pay attention to that. Um, and then I don't need to tell any modern architect uh, that you need to know how buildings are put together. Uh, and that, gosh, I, I am so grateful to my architect friends because construction technologies are a lot more, a lot faster changing than it looks. Um, and I, I can't keep track of it. And I'm very grateful to architects and builders who can. Um, the, uh, the, the, the final thing is, here's where small firm architects are the most important architects in the world, from my point of view. Because again, my point of view is not skyscrapers or shopping malls. My point of view is the houses of the people. How do people live? It's the houses of the people that take up most of the space in any community. Those are the things that, that define a community. How do Baltimore drunks find their way home at night? And in every generation, the houses of the people need to be different from what they were in the generation before because the people are different. Their families are smaller or larger. They come from different countries with different cultural traditions. You know, the, you know, Think of the changes in kitchen design that came as a result of the women's movement. Mom didn't have to be isolated from the rest of the family, and the kitchen became a family room. These are big changes in, in architecture. And the most efficient thing that we can do to house our people is to make use of the buildings we've already got, the embodied energy they already have. Um, and so that requires the kind of work that Skidmore Owings and Merrill is never going to do. All that work is either going to be done without architects at all, or it's going to be done by architects and small firms. Uh, I am a regular patron of small firm architects. 
particularly one, a friend of mine who has designed more Baltimore row house renovations than anybody in human history. And he really, really, really feels it in his bones. He really knows it. Uh, and it is just so exciting. We've got things under construction right now. And uh, he's been doing it for 30 years. And he understands construction and design and history. And he is an incredibly valuable citizen. Uh, and because he's done a lot of it, people like me can afford to hire him. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's really, really very exciting. His name is Charles B. Duff. The book is The North Atlantic Cities. You can learn more about Charles and the book at NorthAtlanticCities.com, NorthAtlanticCities.com. Um, Charles, you also do a lot of speaking, right? So do. you do AIA chapters and, and other things like that. Can you share a little bit about that? Uh, to your audience out there in podcast land, um, if you... You know, if you belong to an AIA chapter, I'd like to speak to it. If your chapter has an architectural foundation, I'd like to speak to it. If you're part of a preservation group or a neighborhood association, I'd like to speak to it. Um, and if you're a graduate of a school of architecture, I think I may assume you are, I'd like to speak to it. Uh, I don't charge anything. Uh, I want to get an idea out there. You can reach out to Charles at NorthAtlanticCities.com. We will have links to everything over at the show notes. You can just go to the show notes. You'll have links to, to all of this. Uh, Charles, this has been a really interesting conversation, something that I really uh, passionately feel about as well. Uh, so thank you for sharing your knowledge here today at Entree Architect Podcast. Great fun. Thank you so, so much. And uh, you know, see you in Baltimore when the pandemic's over. You are listening to episode 363 with Charles Duff, the author of The North Atlantic Cities. This is an episode to share, right? That was super interesting. What a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed my time with Charles. The episode number is 363. If you'd like to access the show notes for all the links or share this episode with a friend, the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 363. Please just type that right now into an email and send it to just one friend. I would appreciate that. This is episode 363, entrearchitect.com slash episode 363. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. Have you been there? We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows. These are shows that we are building for you. So go check it out at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com, G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. If you're not yet a member of the Entree Architect Academy membership, you need to be there. We have ready to edit business resources. We have live monthly training. We have a supportive architect community. It's waiting for you. And now, Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for small firm entrepreneur architects. We're building business systems for you, and they are free to members. It's all waiting for you at Entree Architect Academy membership. Learn more about membership at entrearchitect.com slash join. That's entrearchitect.com slash join. Go check that out and see what you think. Be well, my friends. Be healthy, happy, safe, and secure. Thanks for listening today. I really appreciate it. Love, learn, and share what you know.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.